This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. And today I'm pleased to introduce you to Allison Raskin. Allison is a New York Times bestselling author. She's also the co-host of the popular podcast Just Between Us and co-creator of a YouTube channel of the same name. Allison has written and developed multiple TV shows and created the original scripted podcast Gossip, a vocal mental health advocate. Also, Allison also runs the mental health focused Instagram account, Emotional Support Lady. And boy, do I love that title. Uh, her latest book is called Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD and or Depression. Here today to talk about that and so much more is Allison Rask. And Allison, welcome to Uncorking a Story. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Allison, I always ask people the same question, which is, where does your story begin? So Allison, where does your story begin? You know, I think my story begins around age four when I was diagnosed with OCD. So I had something called pandas, which basically means that I got a strep throat infection. And that sort of activated the OCD in my brain. And um, it came on so fast and suddenly that my parents actually thought I might have had a brain tumor because my behavior changed so rapidly in the course of just like a few days. And so for me, you know, mental health has always been a big part of my life. I think it frames a lot of the way that I see the world having kind of been struggling with my own brain for so long. And then, you know, the next big Part of the story happened around 15 when I realized that I, I could be a writer as a career. You know, I had done this summer program at Williams College and I was taking this writing class. And, you know, at that point I thought, oh, I have to be a lawyer because, you know, that's what adults do. And that's what my dad did. And I had this wonderful teacher who said, you know, you could just be a writer. <laughs> and so, you know, those two things, you know, really, I feel like culminated into my current writing career and mental health advocacy and sort of all the storytelling that I do. So you were 15 and you had this thought, hey, I could write for a living. What, what were some of the things that you were interested in reading or writing back when you were 15? You know, what's so funny about the fact that I wrote a, a memoir is I, I have a terrible memory. <laughs> and so, um, you know, I know that I always like, I think I thought I would be like 
more of a, a fiction writer and writing short stories and, and various things. But then I actually ended up going to USC for their screenwriting program in college. And I think that really clicked in for me because I had always loved writing dialogue. And then we were like touring the USC campus and we were about to go see the, the creative writing program. And my mom said, well, why don't we check out the film school? And that was like another pivotal moment in my life where I was like, oh, no, this is the kind of writing that I want to do. And, you know, it's kind of come back around. Now I've written novels. I have this nonfiction book out and I, I write a weekly blog and I now write a lot more prose than I had for a while in my career. But, you know, it was interesting to sort of like come to this realization that regardless of what medium of writing I'm doing, it's really more about, about the characters, the story, the heart. And I work a lot in themes. And so I think for a while I was like, I want to write for TV. I want to write for TV. And then I sort of was like, I just want to write. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What, what do you feel like you get the most out of writing? Like what part of your soul does it feed? You know, I think it helps me process a lot of things, but I have to say, I hate writing. I hate the act of writing. I think one of my favorite quotes is like painters love to paint, actors love to act and writers love having written. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I love being done with it. Um, a lot of times in the thick of the writing process itself, it's not the most fun. But, you know, I love story. I love like I said, I, a lot of times for a lot of my projects, I'll sort of sit down and be like, OK, what themes do I want to work with? What aspects of humanity do I kind of want to like? start to dive into. And I also love comedy. You know, I think regardless of what medium I'm working in, I've always found comedy to be such a great way to get your point across. For me as a writer, I'm always trying to say like, okay, what do I want this to leave the reader with or the viewer with? You know, like, what are the takeaways? What message am I saying? Because I think sometimes you, you watch something and you go, okay, but what is the point of view here? <laughs> like, what am I supposed... How am I supposed to feel about these characters? How am I supposed to feel about this situation? And as a consumer, I always find that really frustrating because as a creator, I'm always trying to, there's always a purpose for why I'm writing the thing that I'm writing. And, and I'm trying to either get people to think about things in a different way or feel less alone or see the levity in something that maybe they haven't seen before. So I think that that's something that really drives me. I, you know, I love comedy too. And, and um, I write a fair amount of comedy. I'll, I'll perform stand-up comedy. And what I love about it is, you know, comedy can be very complex. I mean, obviously it can be very simple, but, you know, you could really, you know, provide a very strong point of view on your worldview through comedy without anyone kind of realizing what you're doing. It's also very immediate. I mean, you know, if whatever you're writing is working or not working, by the fact that people are either laughing or not laughing, right. <laughs> you know, and it's like in other art forms, like in writing, you know, other types of, of fiction, you may not know how people feel about it until something comes out. But if you write, you know, something that you need feedback on, like people are laughing or not laughing and you kind of know right away what's working or what's not working. Definitely. And it's such a, I think, easier way for somebody to sort of have their beliefs challenged if it's in a comedic way than somebody hitting it over the head with like drama or making you feel bad or guilt, you know, and, and I kind of sometimes call it like tragedy porn. And I, I really love, you know, like, oh, I'm, I'm laughing. I'm thinking about this. And oh, you're right. The way that I was viewing this thing was actually harmful or bad. <laughs> like this is a big problem, but I don't feel lectured to 
I feel like included and I feel like I could get in touch with thinking in a different way without it feeling like an attack. Yeah. It's also, I think, like a very positive emotion, like laughter. I, I tell people like laughter to me, laughter is medicine. That's the way I look at it. It's also very universal. So I, I have three kids. We have triplets. They just turned 20. Oh, and wow. they two out of three of them. I mean, not everyone's perfect, but two <laughs> out of three of them have discovered Seinfeld and are, have been binging it. And, you know, they're hearing old man over here be like, you know, we had to wait for every Thursday night and, you know, you couldn't get up to go to the bathroom because you might miss something. They're watching five or six episodes at a time. But we were watching a couple episodes together over this weekend. And, you know, we're just all laughing at the same thing, you know, and it is like just to see them laugh at these, you know, jokes from the 90s. You know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it's um, to me, it's like comedy is universal. And I love having that shared experience with other people whether it's laughing in a comedy club with them, laughing in the theater with them, or just kind of laughing, sitting around the table, telling stories. Definitely. I, it's so funny. I've been watching Seinfeld again, too. And I'm staying with my parents right now for a bit. And we were all watching Seinfeld last night with my boyfriend, too. We're all loving it. I, I just watch Seinfeld all the time. And it, and it calms me down. It is like, it's like such a lovely thing to always return to. Because those characters are great. Are there some stuff that is like dated and, and no longer would be hopefully on TV? Yeah, of course. But <laughs> the basics of like these humans and the way that they interact with each other. I mean, it's comedy gold. <laughs> yeah, I actually I, 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 I spoiler alerted the other night and I'm like, oh, yeah, my son went to the Yankees game the other night. And uh, I'm like, did you see George Costanza there? You know, the assistant to the traveling secretary. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, George. <laughs> He works for the Yankees. He's like, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> End of season five. You're going to love that episode. <laughs> well, tell me about uh, this uh, latest book of yours. Uh, I'm curious about it because it, uh, you know, connections between romance and, and mental health are uh, kind of up my alley um, <laughs> for a number of reasons. But tell me, what was the um, sort of the, the spark or the inspiration behind this latest book? So I really struggled to date in a healthy way for the majority of my life. <laughs> you know, like this was like, you know, I was always struggling with my mental health, but this was like one area where I really felt out of control. I felt like it would exacerbate the worst parts of me. I felt like I, I like lost all willpower that I was constantly on this roller coaster of emotions and that it took up so much of my brain power. And then I realized a few years ago that I was kind of showing up in a different way, that like all of this work I had done on myself was actually having this great impact in my ability to date and engage in relationships in this new way that was like way less detrimental to my mental health and also made it so I could have healthier relationships. And I sort of was like, well, this is like an interesting transformation. It feels like maybe this would be helpful to share with other people because I think we have this like assumption that we should naturally know how to date. We should naturally know how to have these like complex and vulnerable relationships with other people. And that if you're not able to do that, then something's wrong with you versus like, oh, this is like this kind of scariest aspect of life. And then if you're also struggling with your mental health, it's going to be even more of a challenge. And so I decided to sort of tell my own story, but then really interweave a lot of expert interviews with mental health professionals, dating coaches, couples, just sort of really blow out the books so that it's not just like my story, but like an actual roadmap with like tangible advice and tricks 
for people so that they could like go into the dating world, go into their relationships with a little more confidence and, and tools to navigate it. Yeah. And dating is one of those things where there's no, I mean, no one really prepares you for it. And, and any preparation you have is like fake, right? You know, it's whatever you see on TV, you know, especially when you're, when you first start dating, I mean, gosh, I haven't dated since 1992, which is, you know, the year I met the woman who would become my wife. And I'm sure dating is a lot different now than it was then. But I, I mean, if, if I just, you know, got on my DeLorean, went back in time, I didn't know anything about dating. I mean, you know, it was, I didn't know anything about boundaries and, you know, being vulnerable and sharing my feelings. And I probably still don't know enough about that. But <laughs> so, I mean, what is it like dating now? I mean, just, just paint a picture of that for me because, you know, that's something I have like zero frame of reference for, except I hear things about apps all the time. I think, I think dating now is both good and bad. And I'd say good because the dating apps allow you to just interact with far more people than you would otherwise, right? You're meeting people that are outside of your social circle, outside of your work circle. You know, you have the ability to make connections with someone you would probably never meet in other, any other way. But the flip side of that is that there's so many people you could meet. And I've really noticed that it kind of becomes this thing where everyone is like, well, I could find somebody better. Or because it's like an app, it feels like a game and people are just constantly scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. And it makes it so people don't really treat each other as people anymore. I think that there's been this really unfortunate shift where suddenly all of the rules of like human decency fly out the door as soon as you're like dating and meeting people on apps and people are ghosting each other and, you know, like disappearing for weeks at a time before checking back in. Like, I don't know what it was like to date in 1992, but I, I doubt it was sort of like that or for the majority of people. And I think that's a real shame. You know, I, I would really like people to respect the process more and to not feel silly for prioritizing it, to not feel silly for making real efforts when it comes to this. Because what ends up happening is that people spend all this energy and time, but then it's like kind of like they're spending it in like a weird way or they'll like go on the app, but then they'll delete the app and then they'll go back on the app, and delete, you know, and it, it burns people out. It makes people have like a real negative bias towards dating. And so I'm just sort of hoping that people can start to respect each other more and like take it a little more seriously. Yeah. And I'm sure there's a bunch of creepers out there too, right? I mean, I, I can only imagine the stories people have about you know, the more interesting characters, I'd say you meet through the online dating process. Look, I, I, you know, I think there's always, there's always been people that you have bad experiences with, but I don't know. I'm somebody who tries not to, not to judge too much. And I think, you know, a lot of times what might appear as somebody being like, quote, quote, weird or off-putting is might just be nerves. Like it might just be that they really don't know how to interact in this way or like, their anxiety is getting the best of them, or they've been told bad advice on how to like interact with people. And so, but yeah, obviously like at any time that you're dating, there's going to be people where you're like, Oh, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, just getting back to the topic of, you know, dating and mental health and, you know, there really aren't that many resources or books available about it. And, and I'm just thinking about like where we are right now in sort of history, like coming out of this pandemic, there's still lots of uncertainty. It certainly did a number on, you know, many of us, you know, mentally in terms of mental health, right? Anxiety is on the rise, especially with young people, teens. I mean, I look at my kids, you know, their last year of high school and their first year of college was pretty much 
you know, decimated by, you know, the, the COVID pandemic. But, you know, anxiety has been on the rise. You know, people are, you know, realizing that, hey, we do have a mental health crisis on our hands now. I mean, certainly it was building before the pandemic, but the pandemic really shown, I think, a light on it. What are some of the key takeaways people will walk away from having read your book? One of them that I hope is is to have more self-compassion for yourself, that all of this stuff is hard. Like you said, we're living through a really hard time. Dating is hard. Being vulnerable is hard. Struggling with your mental health is hard. And so like, just if it's difficult, that that's okay. And that doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. You know, I think that there's maybe this sense that if you're struggling, then you don't deserve love, then you're not a good partner, then this element of human life that, you know, not universally desired, but highly desired isn't for you or you don't, you're not worthy of it. And so really the, the premise of the book is like, yes, you might have to work a little bit harder. You might need to do a little extra work on yourself, a little more work in terms of navigating these relationships, but that work won't be for nothing and that you shouldn't deprive yourself of what you want if what you want is a life partner and that instead you should really honor that desire and, and put in the work so that you can have the life that you want. Yeah. I mean, I mean, going into a relationship or trying to find a relationship where you have your own doubts about yourself, like if you're not kind to yourself and you're not, you don't really understand what your needs are, you're never going to be able to voice those needs to somebody else. And I think the danger there is winding up in, in almost a codependent relationship where you kind of lose yourself in the relationship and just kind of wind up serving someone else. And that's, you know, not necessarily speaking from experience here, but that, that could be a, uh, a recipe for disaster, if you will. Definitely. And so much of the book is sort of like figuring these things out about yourself that like, I think there's this unrealistic expectation that when we meet the quote, right person, they will naturally and instinctively know how to care for us and show up for us. That's just false because why would they? You know, you're two different people with completely different backgrounds, with completely different coping strategies and needs. And so, what's really important is, like you said, figuring out what you do need, figuring out how your brain operates, and then having the language and tools to relay that to your partner. And then, what really matters is not if your partner already knew that, because again, why would they? But if they're able to really take in what you're saying and then adapt to it. So if like, for I like to use the example of, you know, maybe with your anxiety, you're somebody who like, it gets really stressful for you on an anxious day to have to think about dinner. So it's really helpful to say to your partner, hey, I'm having a really anxious day. Can you take care of dinner tonight? But if you don't say that to your partner, you know, they might be like, oh, she's anxious today. I'll bring her flowers, <laughs> you know, and you're like flowers. I need dinner. <laughs> but like, <laughs> how would they know that if you didn't tell them? So, so much of the work is figuring out what you need so that you can relay it to your partner. Yeah. So there's really two parts of it. I mean, it's, hey, you know, find, understanding who you are, voicing it to somebody else and what your needs are, but then having that other person like acknowledge it and then take action on it or actually exactly. then take the right action on it. That's where I think a lot of things, again, not speaking from experience, but that's where <laughs> some things can certainly fall fall apart is when somebody acts in a way that's not sort of in line with, you know, what the other person needs or has even said that they needed. It leads to, I know that it leads to conflict, but. Yeah. Some, you need somebody that can understand that the way that you move through the world might be different than the way that they do. And they still respect that. 
They don't instead try to say, oh, but your anxiety about this is illogical. It's like, okay, it's illogical because again, it's a mental illness, but like, can you still respect it? That's what's huge. That's what, that's what's really going to tell you whether or not somebody, you know, is compatible with you long-term. Right. Yeah. Is, is their first instinct to tell you that you're wrong for feeling a certain way or, mm-hmm. you know, to, to gaslight you in that way. All very good stuff. All very deep stuff. Um, <laughs> yes. We're getting very deep here on Uncorking a Story. Let's get undeep for a minute, though, because I always like to ask a couple of fun questions as we go through here. And again, this is all in, in the, you know, under the, the intention of understanding who you are as a person. So, Allison, tell me, what were some of your favorite TV shows when you were a kid? Okay. Saved by the Bell. Huge. Love Saved by the Bell. I also loved Gilligan's Island. (laughs) There was like a period of time where I feel like I would watch Gilligan's Island at breakfast every day before school. So here's the funny thing. I talked to a very wide range of authors and storytellers on the show, right? From, you know, very young to, you know, more of the gray hair set. Gilligan's Island consistently comes up Actually, Gilligan's Island and Love Boat both consistently come up as shows people liked when they were younger. And I'm fascinated by it because I used to watch Gilligan's Island, too, as a kid and kind of looking through it through the lens of somebody who has a little bit more knowledge than he did back then. I'm like, if the professor can build a radio out of a coconut, why not a boat? Right. Why not somebody to get them off the island? That's just me. I know some people you know, believe the same thing. What do you think your fascination with Gilligan's Island was? I think I just love the characters. You know, I think that it was just, you know, it's like a contained show. You've got these same characters like episode after episode. I also think that the theme song was amazing. Like it just got you revved up. It was just so fun to start the show with that. Theme if you've song. never seen an episode of Gilligan's Island, you hear the theme song and you are brought exactly up to date, regardless <laughs> yes. of what had happened the week before. You know exactly what why these people are there. And you're right. It is a character study. These six different characters, you know, and, and just you know, they don't really grow. They don't really have these huge arcs. You know, they are just who they are. But it's it's, it's hilarious show. I mean, it's completely improbable. I mean, I think the cannibals would have eaten them by now. Um, oh. <laughs> but, you know, but the cannibals always seem to go away. I, I, that's another thing I don't get either. But I can't not not talk about Saved by the Bell either, because, um, you know, Zach Morris you know, just that whole that whole show. I used to watch it. I love that show like that and Beverly Hills 90210 are like my guilty pleasures of life. I never watched 90210. I think that was my sister. She was she's a couple of years older than me. And yeah. she watched it. Well, for I mean, whatever t- reason, I missed that boat. Tiffany Amber Thiessen wound up on 90210. I oh, mean, she did. Oh, my gosh. You didn't know this. Yes. <laughs> Tiffany Amber Thiessen was on Beverly Hills 90210. She's, so I now, mean, she was amazing. She, I mean, talk about somebody so captivating Kelly, on screen. Kelly Kapowski. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, there you go. All right. How about this? If we were going through your, your phone or your playlists, so what, what are some of your favorite musical artists that we might find on your favorite playlists? Okay. So I'm a, I'm a pop punk girl. I love Blink-182. I love All American Rejects. And then I also love, I love Taylor Swift. Mega fan. I also really like Carly Rae Jepsen. Um, oh, goodness. Oh, my God. You know who I love? I love Bowling for Soup. And I feel like they don't get the recognition that they deserve. <laughs> you see, now there's always one whenever I ask this question that makes me feel old. I've never heard of Bowling for Soup. How would you describe Bowling for Soup? Somebody's never heard them. I mean, I think you have heard them. Have you ever heard like 1980? 
85 that song i mean they had a couple like bangers that were like on the on the radio all the time when your kids were probably growing up but or actually i'm so much older than your kids maybe not uh <laughs> i won't ask you to sing it for me but uh you know hum the melody i don't know it is like it's like <laughs> pop punk but like it's like more poppy than punk it's like you know like little like rock rock pop maybe um but they are great lyrics so I'm someone who I only care about the lyrics with songs. I need to be told a story. I need for it to like pull me in. Um, and they have like some of my favorite lyrics for songs. There you go. Well, that explains Taylor Swift. I mean, she is a, a true storyteller in, uh, in her songs. That is for sure. Even after she left country and went more pop, uh, those songs are still very uh, storytellish. How do you feel when you are staring at a blank piece of paper or a blank computer screen with uh, the attention of writing something? What does the blank page do for you? So I am somebody who views writing as my job. Like I, if I had to like wait till I was like creatively inspired, I wouldn't ever work. <laughs> and, you know, I have this weekly blog. I have an advice column. I, I just, I have to, to create constantly. Um, I'm on like a schedule. And so a lot of times that that blank page is like, okay, well, I've got an hour and a half. Here we go. <laughs> I don't really let myself, you know, think about it too much because then I think I would get overwhelmed. I just sort of try to dive in and I try to do a good amount of, of thought maybe before I even sit down. So like with my blog, always sort of knowing what I'm going to be writing about that week before I even open that blank page helps me a lot. Yeah, that's, um, you know, when writing becomes your job, I think the perspective changes a bit. Like once you have to start writing towards a, a release calendar or content calendar, it, it does kind of change the nature, not the nature of what you're doing, but how you feel about what you're doing, maybe. I certainly have felt the same way too uh, in the past. But uh, I think that that's good because I, you know, I think it takes some of the quote unquote magic out of it, but that also is what allows me to have the output that I have. I think if I viewed it as something that like was ethereal or that I could only tap into in certain moods and I wouldn't write as much. And instead I write all the time. Yeah. What's the best piece of advice or what's some good advice that you would give to somebody who says, you know, Allison, I want to be a writer. I want to be like you. What kind of advice would you give them? That quote of like the perfection is the enemy of, of the good or, you know, like that you just have to do it. <laughs> You know, that to not be afraid to share your work with other people, to not be afraid to like just finish it. You know, I think that there's there are people that will work on something for two hours and then there's somebody that will work on something for 15 hours. And those extra 13 hours of, of difference don't always matter. You know, so I think I think it's a skill set. It's a muscle. And just the more that you do it and the more that you finish things, the better you get at it instead of staying on this one project forever, because we're filled with stories. We're filled with different ideas and, and don't get, don't be too precious about just one of them. All right. And last up, if you could uh, write a letter to that four-year-old Allison, right? That, that one who was diagnosed with, uh, you said OCD, I believe. If you could write a letter to that young girl and young version of yourself, what would you say? What would Allison today say to that four-year-old Allison? I think I would say what you need to do is not be critical of yourself. What you need to do is be your own friend. That life is going to be hard, but if you can be your friend throughout all of this, it's going to be a lot easier. And that's something that I'd realized earlier, that I wish I had realized earlier. All right. Very good. Well, I know we're at time here. The book is 
Overthinking About You, Navigating Romantic Relationships When You Have Anxiety, OCD, and or Depression. The author is Allison Raskin. Allison, where can people go to learn more about you and all of your various endeavors, including your YouTube channel, your Instagram? Where's, uh, where can we send the listeners of Uncorking a Story? So I'm on, on social at Allison Raskin, but I also have my mental health account at Emotional Support Lady, which is also the name of my Substack. And then I have my weekly podcast, Just Between Us, that I'd love people to check out. There we go. Just Between Us. Check it out. And um, where can people check that out? Anywhere podcasts are available. There we go. Allison, thank you so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.